Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Meta, a podcast about podcasts, and I'm Peter Wells, and today I'm joined by one of my all-time favourite podcasters. You can just never tell what's about to come out of his mouth, even though I've listened to a hundred shows he's done in the past, and so I know some of his beats and some of his slogans, there's still always, always a surprise in store when I speak to or listen to Scott Galloway. How are you, Scott? I'm good, although I was looking for something surprising to say there. Yeah, I'm, gr- I'm great. Good to see you, Peter. I, I basically, I have this thing where I say yes to every Australian podcast. Why is that? You know, that was where I was meant to be born and raised. My father was born in Sydney, and he tells the story that my grandmother had my dad when she was 19 and not married, or as my dad calls it, a a few folds short of the blanket or something like that. And she was a housekeeper in a very wealthy Australian family, and they offered to adopt my dad, my, my grandmother's son. And she agreed, and they said, you have to leave, though, and she was going to leave with her boyfriend and go back to Scotland, and the day before, she decided she couldn't leave her son, and she took my dad with them back to Scotland, and my dad gets teared up thinking about the emotion, and he's teared up because he's like, I could be living in Australia and be a baller. I could have been like a son of a rich (laughs) Australian family. Anyways, a long-winded way of saying, I love Australia. If it wasn't so goddamn far, we'd all live there. I love it there. Anyway. Yeah, but I think uh, being so far away has kind of helped us in the in the last twelve months. Oh, you guys have—we were just talking off mic about Melbourne's lockdown, but you sort of crushed the curve, and you've been a great example for all of us. I mean, Australia and New Zealand, if 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 I understand correctly. But anyways, we'd all mm. we'd all be there if it wasn't if it, if it was a little bit easier to get there. Well, I, I got to say, mate, from from the outside, it might might have looked like it was, you know, a simple and and lovely collective thing that we all did as a country, but it was bloody hard and 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 controversial, right? Yeah, and controversial. Yeah. We had zero support from the the local media, which was well, not all of them, but Mur- Murdoch owns a very large stack of of the media in this country, yeah. and he was all against the lockdowns and saying, you know, our our premier was called Dictator Dan because he was locking us down, and it was just crazy. It was it, one of the one of the things that really made me happy in the last year was that my city stood up against Murdoch and said, "Mate, this is something serious. We're taking seriously. You can write whatever the fuck you want. We're taking this seriously." Yeah, and I think that's inspiring, and I think it reflects leadership and character on the part uh, of your nation. We obviously we're very familiar with Rupert Murdoch; he's a controversial character here, but. Distinct to that, a lot of a lot of conservatives or a lot of people who didn't believe the U.S. should lock down called it tyranny. And mm. my view is, OK, in South Korea and Taiwan and New Zealand, they decided to have tyranny for two weeks such that grandparents could see their grandkids, such that people could go on dates, such that people could go to a concert, such that people could spend time with loved ones. So what is tyranny? You know, what is it strikes me that we could have used a little like 10 or 14 days of tyranny 
And we didn't we didn't call it to, in the United States in World War II. A lot of young men, mm. so they, they instituted the draft in World War II, and a lot of young men, understandably, said, "You sent my father over to Europe in uh, the earliest part, the earlier part of the century. A lot of them came back maimed or didn't come back. We got nothing from it. I'm supporting a family. I'm supporting my widowed mother." And you want me to go back over and fight another war? I am not going. That was understandable. And you know what we did, Peter? We locked 5,000 of them up because we decided it was better for mm. the collective good to impose that type of tyranny. And I think, it's, I think in the United States especially, we have shown a tremendous lack of leadership. For some reason, you know, in the U.S., and obviously this will d- demonstrate my values, you know, there's a lot of public schools now that have metal detectors, but asking someone to wear a piece of cloth mask into a Walmart is tyranny. So I think there's going to be a lot of self-reflection in the United States around just how incredibly poorly we handled this. Maybe with the exception of Britain, I think we kind of take the the prize for the most incompetent response to this. Five percent of the population, of the world's population, a quarter of the infections and the deaths. So anyways, it's been it's been a weird year. And also in America, we've had this stimulus that has basically propped up the rich and I think that's mm. that's extended the pandemic. If you look at Israel's Task 125, which is their NASDAQ, it's gone down in 2020, and they're vaccinating people at seven times the rate, and our NASDAQ has ripped up. And I wonder if that the pandemic or the virus in America, at least, hasn't seen a full-throated capitalist response, because the dirty secret here, Peter, and I don't know if this is the same is true in Australia, but the dirty secret of the pandemic here in the U.S. is that if you're in the top 10%, you're probably living your best life. More time with Netflix, mm. more time with home, and your stock, your your wealth has exploded. So, does that really create the right incentives around what is required to address this pandemic? Again, in World War II, Chrysler converted its largest factory in Michigan to a factory punching out tanks, and that one factory produced more tanks than the Third Reich did the entire war. I haven't seen a single company here totally pivot to a war footing unless they were already in that business. Anyways, I don't know how we got here, but I, from an outsider's viewpoint, I think we. Respect and admire the leadership that you guys have demonstrated in Australia and New Zealand relative to ours anyways yeah i mean i i've I've pondered that myself and it, and it seems like like the the thought is too dark to have of that the 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 baseline idea is that they just tell people what they want to hear, right. so what people want to hear is you can still go out, you can still be free, whatever that's fine. but it feels like there has to be something more to it than that, and you know and my brain kind of somehow sometimes goes to that idea of like, well, maybe it's better for the stock market if like a whole bunch of expendable people disappear. But that's too evil. That's just too evil. Well, I I think there is a conspiracy, but I don't think it's that conspiracy. I think that the stimulus in the United States, four out of five people that have received stimulus say they're not going to spend it. So you have a trillion dollars in stimulus that's gone into people's pockets. A lot of it was what I'll call righteous stimulus. Unemployment mm-hmm. insurance, food banks, uh, vaccination, helping our brothers and sisters who are food insecure. I think we needed to do that right on. But four out of the f- four out of five people who receive stimulus aren't spending it. So what do they do? They either put it yeah. in the bank or they put it in the stock market. When you put it in the bank, interest rates go down, which increases the price of assets. If you put it into the market, the stock market goes up. The S and P and the Nasdaq are up something like sixty percent. And who owns by a gross dollar volume 80 to 90% of the assets and stocks in our country? The rich. So I, you know, my question is, in a, in a war, we're losing people at seven or eight times the velocity that we lost people in World War II. 
doesn't make sense that people should be getting much wealthier during a war. Does it create the right incentives? Mm. Does it create the right sense of urgency? Now, to your question around why would these news organizations put out false content or misleading content, and I think it's especially bad on the right with Fox. Uh, I also think it's bad on the left, and it comes down to what I would call the algorithms of amplification and that novelty travels faster than truth. And that is around 30, 40 years ago, organizations, media organizations recognized news used to be a public service that lost money. It was 27 minutes of fact and fact checking and then three minutes of commentary and opinion. They used to have this point counterpoint. SNL did a a skit on it, you know, Jane, you ignorant slut, where these people would go at each other. Now news has flipped to 97% novelty and calling the other side an ignorant slut because novelty and opinion and anger that, that tickles our tribal censors is just much more entertaining. So CNN has the mm. situation room constantly tickling our senses that, oh, this is, this is dangerous and this is awful. Fox is constantly gaslighting the left. And then that content gets put online. And the algorithms of amplification love anti-vax content. They love election misinformation content because it's controversial. And when reasonable mm. people see anti-vax content, they weigh in and say, no, that's actually not accurate. And then other people who are pro-vax weigh in. Then maybe some trolls from foreign actors who want to kind of encourage a fight or a tear at the fabric weigh in. And it creates enragement, which is engagement, which is more Nissan ads, which is more shareholder value. So unfortunately – misinformation and the unnatural amplification of that misinformation beyond what it would get naturally on its own uh, has a profit incentive. So I think we've ended up with content that is divisive and has also resulted in America where 14% of black Americans don't want to trust the vaccine. 86% don't want to get Mm. it. And granted, we have a terrible history with the vaccines in the black community, but it's more than that. It's that their Facebook feed is filled with misinformation around vaccines. So anyways, it's a it's depressing when you play it out, but I'm hopeful that we're recognizing these problems and that some of the immunities are beginning to kick in. This is the question I, I keep coming back to is, the, is America, it feels like there is an actual change happening. As someone who's, who's watched America from the outside for a very, very long time, it feels like a breaking point. And I, I'm not sure if that's just me putting a, a narrative spin or an arc uh, onto what I'm watching, but it does feel like this shit can't continue. I, I think you're right. I, my book, Post-Corona, I make a bunch of predictions, and people say, what's your prediction for America in 2021? And I said, I think it's either going to be our best year or our worst year. And I don't know if this is the beginning of the end or the beginning of a renaissance. And I don't like the notion that it's just fate, that it'll play out as it plays out. I think we've got to really be thoughtful and say, okay, if we spend $700 billion on the military and $7 billion on the CDC, and there don't appear to be any tanks lined up at the Canadian-American border or the Mexican-American border, yet this, this enemy that's one four thousandth the width, the width of a human hair is killing more people than any war, then do we have our priorities uh, mixed up? If, if a third of our nation has comorbidities through poor diet because they don't have access to healthier food, they don't have access to health care, and they make so little money that even though they're vulnerable, they have to put themselves in harm's way by putting their diabetes medication and their Diet Cokes in a cooler and heading out as an Uber driver. Have we set Ooh. ourselves up? Have we set ourselves up where we think we're so exceptional that it's resulted in a level of arrogance that, okay, the virus seems to be spreading everywhere, but that wouldn't happen here. You know, That was generally the feeling a year ago. And I want to be clear. 
I, I was infected with that arrogance. I didn't think that it was going to hit here. I said, I'm going to. I remember. Yeah. I said, I'm going to go to conferences and extend my hand and shake people's hands because I, I didn't understand the virality. I didn't understand. I was ignorant. And I also felt, I think I was infected a little bit with what I'll call American except, exceptionalism that morphs to arrogance. But there's an opportunity here. Do we decide, okay, we're not going to, we're just not going to let a third of our population be vulnerable, not have access to health care, not have a month's worth of savings? Do we decide to maybe leave some emissions behind? Do we decide that people with children can work from home and perhaps perhaps not have to commute as much? Do we decide to have a Marshall Plan for moms who have absolutely, uh, we have lost 30 years of workforce uh, progress. Uh, we now have the same number of women in the workforce as we had in 1988 because they have unfortunately been forced to stay at home and teach their kids if schools have been closed. Like what, what are our decisions here around capital allocation, around the way we approach healthcare, the way we approach each other? Should one man, should one man, be losing and gaining the wealth of the state of Vermont in two average trading days of his holdings in Amazon. I mean, I'm a capitalist. Mm. I think we should have billionaires, but has it gotten out of control? Should one man, Elon Musk, add the GDP of Hungary since the pandemic broke out? Does it make sense that one man is aggregating the wealth of a large nation since war mm. broke out? So- but uh, we have to look at all of these things and then make conscious decisions. I don't like the notion that we're just going to be fatalists and just say how it all plays out. So I, I'm hopeful there's some big silver linings here, but only if we're sober around where we've screwed up, what are the diseases that have haunted us, and how can we, if you will, vaccinate ourselves against this happening again. Yeah. Look, we'll we'll move on from covid after this, I promise. But it's nice to know that people see the work we did in Melbourne and and appreciate or uh, you know envy the the hard steps we t- took uh, in Melbourne. One of the things that doesn't get enough coverage, I think, that that was central to our our success was there was a government program to pay people sick leave who didn't have sick leave. So if you were an Uber driver, mm-hmm. if you were a casual worker, and and our you know premier actually got on TV and said. Uh, insecure labor is one of our largest health issues facing us this, today, mm-hmm. and that's why we're going to pay people to be homesick so that they don't go out and spread the virus. Mm-hmm. This is something that comes up quite a bit on your various shows when you talk about you know, the, the gig economy and, and things like that. It is, first of all, what is your opinion on the gig economy, and is it a net positive or net negative for mm-hmm. our society? So I think if you look at the American economy, it's gone through kind of the manufacturing phase. It was agrarian, it was farming, then it was manufacturing, then it was the service economy. And I would argue it went to the innovation economy. I think big tech is full of a ton of incredible innovation. I worry that it's moved to the exploitation economy, that companies that are aggregating the most shareholder value right now, whether it's Google or Facebook or Robinhood or Uber, are in the business of using software to arbitrage human capital. I think essentially Uber is a piece of software that says there is an underclass of mostly immigrants who are willing to take $6, $8, $10 an hour, or even take a negative wage and do a payday loan against the maintenance in their car because the only asset they have is time and a smartphone because they don't have great prospects. I think Robinhood is playing off of people's boredom and uh, especially young men's propensity towards an addiction towards gambling and also these 
these uh, apps make you feel like everyone around you is doing better. Everyone's better looking. Everyone's has more money. Everyone is making money on stocks. And I think we've turned into, unfortunately, there's a bit of a menace economy. I think Facebook is incredibly, the incentives are all screwed up. I think they divide us. So I worry that we're moving to this exploitation economy. And I would argue that the gig economy is 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 part of that. And we had a proposition here in California that passed. They spent $120 million. Their proponents were able to raise like $2 million, but basically says they can't unionize. They did get some things. They did get a bank or an escrow for health care. But I think there's a deeper sickness here in the United States, and that is the U.S. used to be about helping unremarkable people become remarkable and gain economic security. And I think it's slowly but surely pivoted to how do we take the remarkable and turn them into billionaires? In my industry in education, it used to be about letting in unremarkable sons of single immigrant mothers who lived and died a secretary, yours truly, and giving them a great education for a total of $7,000 in tuition. Now it's turned to how do we find the remarkable kids and turn them into billionaires? And there's some good components of that. If you're a remarkable kid in the inner city, Harvard will find you and you will find Harvard. But I can prove to us mathematically that 99% of our children are not remarkable. And what do we do with those guys now? And I would argue that the education system and more broadly our society has moved from how do we get people into the top 1% and it's morphed to how do we turn the top 1% into billionaires? It's become the Hunger Games where let's either give people an incredible life or they die a hideous death or more broadly speaking, we're barreling towards a society in the U.S. here of 350 million serfs serving 3 million lords. I think we've lost the script. I think our tax policy is ridiculous. Billionaires now pay a lower tax rate than their personal assistants or the Uber driver or secretaries. We have education institutions that see themselves as luxury brands that brag about rejecting 90% of their applicants, which in my view is tantamount to a housing shelter, bragging they turned away 90% of the people that showed up last night. So we have some real, and the pandemic has highlighted some of this ugliness. And I'd like to think there's a lot of people who recognize this is not sustainable. When you have the levels of income inequality we have in the United States, if you look at economic history, the good news is they always self-correct. The bad news is that the mechanisms of self-correction are war, famine, or revolution. (laughs) And I would argue we're two or three of three right now. Pestilence is famine and revolution. I don't care if it's Black Lives Matter or what's happened at the GameStop, uh, Reddit movement. I think it's a form of revolution. I think when young people under the age of 40, when they see their wealth go from 19 percent of wealth in the U.S. to 9 percent, I think they're just fed up. The basic compact in a society Mm. is that if you play by the rules and you're a good person and you work hard, by the time you're 30 – You'll be doing than your parents were at 30. For the first time in our history, that's no longer true in America. And I think that's the basis of, some, of what I would call sort of you know several kind of mini revolutions taking place. Yeah, but it feels like COVID really laid bare a lot of the the lies that we tell ourselves 100%. as a society. Hundred percent. We think that we're a you know a very egalitarian society. There's no class structure. All that kind of stuff suddenly goes out the window when you can sit at home and order something in an Uber and it arrives and you never have to touch a grocery. I think kind of the biggest trend in our society right now is what I call dispersion. And the easiest way to describe that is that, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but we could get Wonder Woman 1984 the same day it was in the theaters. Content is being dispersed to our screens without passing through the gatekeepers of movie theaters. Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't green light stuff at Quibi. It's you and me on TikTok deciding what content. 
there's going to be a dispersion of health care. And that is 99% of the people who contracted, endured, and developed antibodies to novel coronavirus will have never entered a doctor's office, much less a hospital. So they're getting health care at home. Dispersion of my business, education, more people probably, there's probably going to be more money spent in re- on remote learning in the next 24 months than in the last 24 years. So it's being dispersed. Headquarters is being dispersed, right? We A $12 trillion asset class in the U.S., We'll see probably a net demand destruction of twenty to thirty percent, and it's all going to the home. So that that ratty carpet is now intolerable. You spend money on Zoom. You're you're up upgrading your house, your home office. It's all lumber prices all time high. Residential real estate at an all time high, and we're just seeing we're seeing a massive dispersion of all sorts of industries. I think that's probably the biggest opportunity is when we see that the content that's being like almost like a centrifugal force being spun out to the end consumer. And I think, okay, how do we get in the way of that? I don't remember what the original question is. I'm lost. Where am I, Peter? Where am I? <laughs> I have no Where idea. Look, let's get to tech. Okay. Let's t- get to tech a little bit because, you know, you, you host uh, Pivot with Kara Swisher. It's, it's my absolute favorite podcast uh, going around at the moment. Thanks, buddy. I, I first discovered your work with The Four. And because of that, I, I heard you interviewed with Kara Swisher on her, one of her older podcasts. Yep. Talk me through The Four for people who don't know the idea behind it because it it, it's a fascinating wonderful book. Yeah, so uh, I'm an academic and you can't get very far without doing peer-reviewed research. Uh, I don't have a PhD. I didn't want to do peer-reviewed academic journal research, so my dean said you need to write a book. And the companies I'm fascinated with are Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. I'm really fascinated with how technology disrupts traditional industries. So I decided to write a book about these four companies and try and understand their link to our instinct and see if you could reverse engineer the key components of what is required for a company to potentially get to a trillion dollars. And I discovered that I thought they fit well to basic instincts. I, I think that Google is our God. If we pray, a prayer is really just a query hoping for some sort of divine intervention. We'll process it and send us back an answer we trust more than any mentor job or any mentor or boss. And it used to be when your kid was not doing well, you looked to the skies and said, you know, will my kid be all right? That was your prayer. Now it's symptoms and treatment of croup typed into the Google query box. Google. Google is our modern-day God, and as a society gets wealthier and more educated, its reliance on a super being and church attendance goes down, but our questions continue to get bigger and bigger, and into that void has stepped technology, because technology is kind of the closest thing we have to mysticism and magic. You just—nobody can—I can't explain how my phone can do what it does, so it feels almost godlike, and uh, that's kind of the new Jesus Christ of our— of our information economy, Steve Jobs, who denied his own blood under oath such that he could avoid child support payments when he was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. So it's in, it's resulted in incredible innovation. There's this obsession of this idolatry of technology and innovators, but it also has some very negative externalities. And I think if Facebook held out the promise of love and connection, you know, when you deny kids affection, they have worse outcomes than kids that are denied than kids that are denied nutrition but get affection. So Facebook is love. I think Amazon is our gut, and that is we survival. Whoever goes into the cave with the most berries wins or survives. So more for less is the gangster business strategy. Amazon has kind of won that war. And then the genitals, our second most powerful instinct, is propagation. And Apple says to the world that you're part of a wealthy class, that you're a great communicator, that you think different. That you're just part of a of a of a class that is has more resources and is more thoughtful and is more attractive to other mates. So I think all of these things foot to instinct. And what started as a love letter to these companies, 
I think they're incredible. I own their stocks. It ended in a cautionary tale, as I really did a lot of research Ooh. about them. And it seems sort of passe now, but when I was writing this book four years ago, I was saying, I said in the book, Mark Zuckerberg, I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person in the world. And people said that I was a loon and an alarmist and that I thought Google mm -hmm. should be broken up and that I thought Amazon was going to be bad for American retail and job growth. And there was a lot of pushback initially. And every day, it's almost gotten to a point. Like there was a moment where people said, wow, this is really forward thinking. Now everyone's like, yawn, tell me something I don't know. But it was it was a real a great exploration for me. Have you ever written a book, Peter? I have not, no. So it's like serving in the Marines. You're glad you did it in the past tense. And there's some sort of mm -hmm. hormone that comes over you where you develop amnesia. Otherwise, you would never write another one. And every time I agree to do the next one, I'm like, how on earth did I agree to do this again? It really is, <laughs> it really is a, a, a labor of love or not love. Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating to watch how the conversation has changed around big tech. Just in, in the couple of years since that book was published, we, we looked at t tech so much. So much of the writing and reporting around tech was this kind of purple prose about how they're changing the world, like believing the bullshit that tech told us. Right. And it's it really feels like that is starting to change as well. We're, we're seeing antitrust murmurs yep. developing more and more. Do you, do you think that we are on the brink of seeing some of these bigger companies broken up? I do, but I've been fooled before. I've been saying that for a couple of years. But I do think if you look at AGs, attorney generals across the United States, there's a lot of motions for antitrust. The FTC has filed, the DOJ have filed antitrust against Google. I think the Biden-Harris administration will pick those up and continue them. So yeah, I do think antitrust is on the horizon. The shape it takes if it's two of the four or three of the four, I don't think it happens to Apple. I do think it happens to Facebook and Google first and foremost, or not in that order, probably Google first and Facebook. I do think it happens to Amazon, although my prediction was they spin AWS prophylactically and within five years, AWS is the most valuable company in the world. I don't think antitrust happens to Apple. I think it's regulation. Elegant antitrust not only breaks up the company and oxygenates the economy, but the shareholders do well. When eBay spun PayPal, PayPal is now worth, I think, 20 times more than eBay. When AT&T was broken up, each of the seven companies within 10 years was worth more independently than the original mothership of AT&T. So elegant antitrust is a very capitalist thing to do. And the problem with trying to break up Apple is who gets control of the brand. So I think Apple mm -hmm. will be regulation around the App Store, which has kind of become the rails on which all apps have to travel. And they're this ultimate toll keeper and they're competing with other people on the rail. So I think I think it'll be regulated. I think the other three will incur some sort of antitrust and regulation. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, what do you think about Disney? I mean, it spent the last decade acquiring other companies. Mm -hmm. Is it now too big? Does it need to be broken up? I don't think so. I, th I think that there's a lot of content players. I think there's a lot of choices in TV. There's even, a, my sons are 10 and 13. There's a lot of choices. And I said to my 10-year-old, where do you want to go? He's like, he said, well, I don't know if we want to go to Galaxy's Edge at Disney, or I want to go to Universal, or I want to go to Volcano Bay, which is this water park. So, I mean, even there's even competition there. So I don't know. And they don't have vertical distribution. They don't control their distribution. They have to go through they have to be in the app store. They have ABC, which uh, station here, but they don't control vertically their distribution. So I don't think Disney is a candidate for antitrust. Those $10 billion in acquisitions they've made around Lucasfilm and Marvel are really starting to hum now. And I think Disney, I make kind of one stock pick a year. Four years ago, it was Netflix. Then it was Disney. 
Then it was Spotify, and my stock pick last year was Twitter. But I think Disney uh, has the opportunity, if you will, to create what I call the ultimate rundle, and that's my terrible word for recurring revenue bundle. So think of Prime as a recurring mm-hmm, revenue mm-hmm. bundle that includes photo storage, 48-hour free delivery, Amazon Prime Video. I think where Disney is headed, and they will use Disney Plus as kind of the anchor for this, is they'll say, all right, Peter, you're going you're gonna to join something called Disney Plus Plus, and it's 50 bucks a month. And in exchange for that, yep. you get special cabins on Disney cruises. You get to come to Disney World on special days. You get Disney Plus and ESPN and Hulu all preloaded on your phone. You get a Baby Yoda doll sent to you automatically because we know you're watching The Mandalorian and you love it. And if you're in Europe or the U.S. and maybe not Australia, but if you have kids, I feel like you're going to have to join this damn thing. And so mm. – and and what you see in the marketplace is a company can maintain its revenues or even decline, have its revenues decrease, and massively increase stakeholder value with a move to recurring revenue. So, for example, Apple in the last 18 months really hasn't meaningfully increased its top-line revenue nor its earnings. But it's gone from a price-earnings multiple of 14 to 40. Its stock has more than doubled because it now has not 10 percent but 25 percent of its revenue coming from recurring revenue. And that is Apple One, you know, their apps. And I think they're about to go full Rundle and start saying, all right, Peter, pay us 100 150 bucks a month. And the latest iPhone, iPad, AirPod, AirPod Pros, and all the apps you love will get you the item 60 days before anybody else. And it'll be preloaded. And you'll just say, take me, I'm yours, Apple. And then maybe special events for podcasters at the Apple Store in Melbourne. And you'll just decide mm-hmm. that you want to be part of that community. and. What these recurring revenue bundles tap into, and uh, it's one of the things I learned from Mark Ritson, who's kind of my, I don't call him my nemesis because I'm jealous of him. I, if that guy was in America, he'd be the most famous academic in the world. But anyways, Sheena Iyengar, who's a colleague at Columbia, and Mark both have said something that stuck with me. Professor Iyengar said that choice is, is a tax. And I've always thought choice is a good thing. And her view was, she has this great quote, that we don't want more choice. We just want to be – we want fewer choices, but we want to be more confident in the choices presented. And that's what a recurring mm-hmm. revenue bundle is. It says, okay, we know you're going to love this stuff. We know you want it. We're going to charge you one annual fee, and we're going to make your life a lot easier. So I think uh, Disney is a fanta- – I think Disney is a fantastic stock to own. I think it's a fantastic company. And they are going to put out so many Rogue One, Ashoka, you know, Darth Maul. They are just going to go crazy with those assets and extend, extend the heck out of them. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned uh, Twitter and at a certain point I, I've, I've wondered, I've, I've listened to so much, so many of your shows that I wonder, do I even have my own opinions anymore or of your opinions on certain <laughs> Are we brothers from another mother now? My, 
Yeah, exactly. Like I, I worry that sometimes your your opinions have crept into my brain and and and. Oh, but but like Twitter has driven me nuts since the day I signed up, which was like fourteen years yeah. ago. Because it was like it was such a wonderful product when it first started. Yeah. It was a great way of talking to other people. It had all its APIs out in the open, so that people could build platforms on top of it. It could have been WhatsApp. It could have been. It could have been a hundred different. Uh, Clubhouse and everything else that came after it, it should have been all of those things. And it left it all behind to chase, I don't know, 100%. the same kind of anger clickbait algorithms that, that the rest of the world is is following. I, I, I know you are very vocal on about your, your issues with Twitter yeah. and, and one man who who is currently based in the Bahamas or somewhere. Can you give me an idea of where you hope to see Twitter go over the next 12, so, years, uh, 12 months? Uh, just Disclosure, I'm a shareholder. That was my big stock pick for 2020. And I speak to a lot of kids about financial security. And the good news is I know how you can get rich. The bad news is it's slowly. And I buy one stock maybe every one or two years, and I hold it for several years. And I found that that's been a great strategy. I think the tagline for Robinhood, the trading app, should be the more you trade, the more you lose. I think the key is to find Mm -hmm. good companies that you're willing to hold for a decade. So I love Twitter. I'm addicted to it. I also think that the algorithms of amplification are tearing at our society. And Facebook and Google can do them at scale. Twitter has algorithms of amplification. They have all of the calories of Facebook and Google, but none of the great taste. They do it at subscale so they don't get the profits. So my feeling is Twitter needs to be a subscription model. And I think someone like myself that has a decent number of followers, as much as people say, oh, I would never pay, I think I would pay to hold on to my followers. I get tremendous updates and news. My news feed, people ask me, what are your sources of inspiration? I used to read The Economist. I used to read The FT. I primarily get my information now from Twitter. And tw- I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. I'm addicted to it because I'm, I'm a narcissist and I'm, de- I'm desperate for the affirmation of others. And on a regular basis, I get dunked on hard because I say something stupid and people are there to remind me it's stupid and then they pile on. But Twitter reflects – Twitter and motivates and reflects a lot of really unfortunate things in our society. And that is, in America now, if you're offended, you're right. We've become, there's this kind of orthodoxy where anybody, especially on college campuses, if you're offended, uh, it means you're right. And if you dunk on people because of your, you're offended, you get virtue points. There's a guardians of gotcha reward system on Twitter where it's not about a discussion. It's about pushing people up so you can tear them down. The incentives, the algorithms love brevity and violence. So if someone gives you a quick sentence back like, that ain't chief, or easy for, you know, or comments on something I'm saying and just writes back white privilege, the algorithm Mm, loves that. It loves Mm. pithy, aggressive, brief statements. And I wonder, I actually think Twitter might be responsible for making almost every celebrity and media person a a skosh more of an asshole because you get a ton of likes and reinforcement for being pithy and a bit of a dick. Yep. And is that really what we want to be moving towards? And then in the US, we had uh, we had misinformation on the Twitter pal- platform that that motivated a mob. I'm not saying there that was the sole uh, the sole contributor, but it was definitely part of it. And then they were organizing on Twitter and my sense is that Twitter has become even an unwitting handmade to sedition. And they're finding, in my view, or I think they've come to the realization, or I hope they've come to the realization, that a Capitol Police officer being bludgeoned to death by a fire extinguisher is not a good business model. 
And so I would like to see them do a few things. Move to subscription, which I think they could easily do. Invest in vertical content. I think they should buy CNN. I think they could actually buy it for seven to eight billion, which would be about a 20% dilution. And I don't want to make a personal attack. I think the company warrants and deserves a full-time CEO. I don't think that's an unreasonable Ooh. thing for shareholders to ask, that this company is so important, and not only in terms of the potential around shareholder value, but also in terms of the role it plays in society, that it warrants a full-time CEO. Call me crazy, Peter. Call me crazy. Anyways, those three mm-hmm. things, I think the stock is a triple digits. I love Twitter. I'm addicted to it. I think it's a net good for society, but the problem is with the word net. Pesticides are a net good for society, but we have regulations. Fossil fuels and internal combustion engine, I think, are net good for society, but we have emission standards. We have miles per gallon standards. We just need to fix Twitter, and it's absolutely fixable. So th- this is what makes you so fascinating to listen Go to. On. You, you, Go on! Go on, Peter! Yeah. <laughs> Go on! Because you are... S- such a clear capitalist. You you love the free market. You love everything about it. But Americans, at least, again, from my own outside perspective, seem to be very anti-regulation a lot of the time. I've heard really sensible people who have gone to university and, you know, I r- admire their views will always kind of say, well, you know, um, I- I'm not too sure if we need regulation. And it, and it just blows my mind when I think about things like, you know, would you like your airline not to be regulated? I kind of think at a certain point, there's a good reason to have the government look over certain things and make sure that everyone's following safety standards. You're absolutely right. In the right place, the government does some things really good at scale. The government is really good at defending our shores. They do a really good job with the Navy. They do a really good job of ensuring that schools don't segregate. They do a really good job with, with the law. And they also do a really good job on certain economic policies and regulation. You talked about airline transportation, air traffic control, funding from the government, the fact that the most dangerous part of, of air travel is the drive to the airport means that we've created the circulatory system and confidence where basically 99% of people are willing to fly. And that shit's just freaky. To think that you're skirting along the surface of the atmosphere at 500 miles an hour in a, in a steel tube with recirculated air, we should all be terrified. But we're not because mm-hmm. the government has made the requisite investments and has the scale and has also cross-border cooperation. Our superpower as a species is cooperation. For some reason, America decided we need we didn't need to cooperate any longer. But air traffic control, you know, when when an American airliner is headed into Shevenko Airport or whatever it is in Moscow, they speak the same language. They have the same formats. They have a respect for each other. They cooperate. And they land that plane safely. And this circulatory system of getting oxygen to the different parts of the global corpus has been an incredible boon for our economy. And it reflects government at work. It reflects incredible investment in our what I'll call our invisible infrastructure, our our skyways. And it reflects global cooperation. You know what? I don't know if you've ever been on those flights and there's some bullshit in the Middle East or wherever where their countries are angry at each other so that you see the – you see we're avoiding Egypt or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that just costs everyone money. That just that just makes no sense. So I, I, I think regulation, antitrust, good regulation is absolutely oxygenating. It, it it's the reason why it's the reason why people with disabilities get to work. It's the reason why you know kids with single mothers you know, aren't in poverty that we have, we have, you know, we have equal rights or to a certain extent, I would say we have equal rights. We're still not there yet. 
But yeah, I think the government, there's been a screed in America since Reagan that government is bad, that they're incompetent mm. and that they're evil. And as a result, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy because we keep cutting their budgets. They become less and less competent. And then what do you know? A pandemic hits and our state and local health authorities just don't have resources. And we don't do a great job of handling this. So it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Government is our connective tissue. We need to stop disparaging them. We need to make it cool to go to work in government again and not just for the ego jobs to be you know, an elected official. But I, I love government. I love infrastructure. I always say I'm a, the son or the product of big government. I went to state schools, UCLA and UC Berkeley. So the generosity of taxpayers and the vision of the University of California, the regents, government, changed my life. I'm here with you today because of big government. Mm. Yeah, I wish more people would see that, see the role that government can play in lifting everyone up. But anyway, I, I asked this question to Kara, and you, you mentioned Zuck earlier, so I have to uh, ask you now. Who do you think is more detrimental to society, Zuckerberg or Murdoch? Oh, Zuckerberg, because Murdoch, biology will take care of Murdoch. He, he's going to be... He's no longer going to be an issue in the next few years, and his the next generation aren't aren't as smart and they aren't they aren't as evil. So that cocktail isn't as powerful. That that's that nitro and glycerin just isn't there with the next generation. Zuckerberg could be with us for another fifty years. I said in my book that Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person on the planet. I think he's a sociopath. I I think when you're in charge of a platform called WhatsApp, where people are circulating rumors in rural India on WhatsApp, and people are being pulled out of cars and hanged. And then you mm. know this is going on, and you try and delay and obfuscate and take out some ads and newspapers, and more people are hanged. Or that teenage girls' self-harm is skyrocketing because of a few things, concierge parenting, bulldozer parenting, but also social media platforms. And when you find out that our elections may have been weaponized in key swing districts by foreign intelligence arm of the Russian government on your platform, because even though they were paying in rubles, you didn't bother to look into that account. I don't know how the guy sleeps at night. And I get the feeling he sleeps mm. just fine. So <laughs> you, have a, you have a sociopath. He can't be removed from office. And he could be with us for 50 or 60 years. And he's controlling the algorithms that present the content to one third of the globe's population. What could go wrong? I mean, this guy, hands down, is the most dangerous person on the planet. And Murdoch, Murdoch's been incredibly damaging. He's done. What is he? How old is, how old is Rupert? Uh, 89, 86, something like that. Okay, so, uh, yeah, biology is going to solve that problem for us. It's going to solve it with Putin as well. The Zuck could be with us for another 60 or 70 years. Do you find it fascinating, though, we're now in this era where in, in place of regulation, in place of the FCC, in place of the system working as it should, we now have this situation where Tim Cook at Apple is releasing iOS privacy features that specifically attack Facebook. And Facebook is announcing a plan to sue Apple because of its its antitrust power over the App Store. Like, it, it, it's this bizarre, you know, the, the market is supposed to work itself out. Instead, we're now getting the market leaders becoming their own police against each other. Yeah, well, if you look at the insurrection, we didn't turn to the FBI, we didn't turn to our senators, we begged the head of Airbnb to not rent rooms to people during the inauguration in DC. We asked Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey to suspend the president's account. That's where we are. We're calling on the better angels of 30 and 40 something tech leaders because 
they have literally overrun government. They're kind of our new proxy or shadow shadow governments. So I it's 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 weird that we I mean it it's just incredibly weird that we even got here. But in terms of the Cook Zuckerberg feud, so Tim Cook being righteous about privacy is and I'm not saying it's not a principled approach. And I'm not saying that he doesn't believe these things, but he's talking his own book because if we move from an ad-supported economy online to a subscription or app-based, he gets 30% of everything. If you download Netflix, if you download Hulu, if you download the Calm app, he takes a 30% toll. If you download the Facebook app, he doesn't get anything because they monetize it themselves by collecting and harvesting your actions and then selling it to advertisers. So – is he right? Is Facebook a menace or is he talking his own book? The answer is yes. Uh, I think he's right, but let's be clear. He he wants the world to go subscription and app-based or or pay-for-play app-based. He's been you know very thoughtful about this. I think he manages his brand incredibly well. It is an existential threat to Facebook. I think Facebook trying to go antitrust around Apple seems somewhat ridiculous when you look at how Facebook treats partners. Apple can, I just think that dog won't hunt, or if it does, expect a lot of antitrust on Facebook. Mm. It's definitely a war for the ages, though. And I generally think these guys do not, if you think about globally, the agreement we have is the whole world is bifurcating into iOS and Android. And the deal iOS has with its consumers is You'll get self-expressive benefit. You'll get to communicate to potential employers, potential mates, that you are in the elite iOS class and will only pull 200 data points a day from your phone, but it's going to cost you $1,200 for $500 of sensors and chipsets. And then Android says we're going to pull 2,200 or, excuse me, 1,400 points a day from your phone. We're going to violate your privacy. We're going to molest your privacy. But you're going to get a phone that's got the processing power of the space station for free. And we're going to give you all these apps for free. And to be blunt, 90% of the world's population is willing to make that trade. They're like, I like, I like Uber, uh, seeing where the Uber is and when it's driving up. And okay, maybe they know where my location is. I like Instagram serving me an ad for the weekend when it senses or it can tell I'm at the Super Bowl because I take a selfie on Instagram. The, the things that make my – that creep my generation out – Younger generations see as utility. So it, the world is bifurcating into what I'll call we give up some privacy in exchange for utility for free. You know, that old adage, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, or iOS. And it's a war of the ages. It's a battle between the two. And Tim Cook is taking advantage of the fact that people are increasingly concerned about their privacy, and he's inviting them over to the app-based subscription economy and generally, I generally think he, he is horrified by what he sees at Facebook. There, there's an idea that people are going to get subscription fatigue, I guess, that, that there are only so many you can, you can hang on to. Where, like, at, at what point do I just give up because there are far too many services I'm paying for? So I think it's, I think it's more a function of the specific pricing and product offering. So I think the number of sub subscriptions we're being asked to deal with around streaming video, it's not a function of how much it's costing. I mean, if you think about it, the cable bundle was this massive subscription bundle, 120, 100. Mm. Every year I like got on the phone with someone from Time Warner and they said, all right, do you want the Starlight Express Plus? It includes your local sport teams. Do you want 
And before I knew it, I was paying $150, $180 a month for this bundle, including... <laughs> Can I just stop you there and just say, pay TV never took off in this country. Really? So, yeah, we never really had that issue. That's interesting. I was Well, I mean, like for years, the pay TV channels weren't able to get sport. Sport was considered of national importance, so they could never poach sport and steal it and make you sign up that way. And, and I think that really helped. That's interesting. But what you have here is, I don't think it's an issue of cost. I think it's an issue with streaming video of complexity. And that is, I spend more time trying to figure out my password for Hulu and then my password for Apple TV and then my password for Netflix. And we just need one interface. So for example, what's remarkable is Spotify. Spotify has taken an entire medium, put it on one app, and made it very searchable. When you think about what Spotify has pulled off, it's extraordinary. TV hasn't done it. Streaming video. I mean, it's just incredible what they've pulled off. So I I think the complexity, I think there'll be a consolidation, but I don't think people are going to spend less money on subscription. And that is the value you're offered is extraordinary. You get, for every dollar you pay on Netflix, you get one and a third billion dollars in content. Every dollar a month I give to Netflix, they give me one and a third billion dollars in content. That's an incredible deal. All of them are an incredible deal. What is taxing, where the cost is, is the complexity and the lack of interoperability. But in terms Ooh. of subscription, I think a greater share of our disposable income will go towards subscription because it simplifies our life. I think that there's the the, the people that these products appeal to or are targeting have more money than time. And even if your subscription, your monthly subscription goes from 200 bucks a month to 260 to 300 to 400, I still think you're going to get incredible utility. It's the best. These things, these subscription-based apps offer just incredible value because the marketplace loves them and gives them cheap capital such that they can make investments no one else can compete with. So consolidation around simplicity but I would predict the amount of money we spend on apps and subscription outpaces inflation for a long time. Quite often you you go on these incredible rants on Pivot where you talk about the inequality in, in America. At the same time, you are a shareholder in, in companies like Amazon yep. that famously treats its workers not the best in its distribution centers. How do, how, do you, how do you reconcile those parts of your life? My hall of mirrors of hypocrisy. So first and foremost, I'm a capitalist, and I think everyone has an obligation to provide economic security for them and their families. I used to own Facebook stock, and I think it's, I think it's dangerous and wrong to just group them all into one segment, big tech. I think Facebook is a net negative for society, and so I decided to sell my stock in Facebook because I do think they're a net negative. I think Amazon is a net positive. I think even with all the labor problems, with the, them gamifying the Commonwealth around this HQ2 circus that transferred money from municipal fire and police districts to their shareholders. I think you know Amazon is the second largest employer in America. They're the largest recruiter out of my class. They've created a ton of shareholder value. They're the first company to hire half a million people in a 12-month period. When they took minimum wage to 15 bucks, that was arguably the largest pay raise ever executed on a company. Having said that, Job destruction, anti-competitive, anti-monopoly abuse. Quite frankly, I think that's our fault. We need to elect people that hold them accountable. But I think they're a mm -hmm. net positive. I think, and, and again, I don't think that means we don't hold them to account. I'd like to think I am very rough on them. But I'm comfortable being a shareholder. And what I always say to people in a capitalist society is you need to fix your own oxygen mask. You need to invest. You need to focus on your own economic security. If you don't want to invest in an oil company, I get it. I decided 
You think Exxon is a net negative? Don't do it. I think that Amazon and Apple, which I'm an investor, and I think Twitter, which I'm also an investor, I think uh, I think they're net positives. As a shareholder, I am trying to make changes at Twitter. I am loudly, loudly advocating for change there that I think mm-hmm. will be better for society. But you know what? I, 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 I sometimes wake up and go, you know, I have no moral clarity here. <laughs> but uh, what, <laughs> what I'm trying to get to is just selfishly, I'm a capitalist. My economic security comes first. I don't think I'm being too hypocritical. I'm trying to be very transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to make changes at the companies I'm a shareholder in. In a company like Facebook, which I think is a net negative, I sold my stock, I'm out. And there are certain companies I will not invest in. I think that's fair. I mean, you know, you can't make it through the day without feeling guilty in some way in this in this current world. I mean, I, I, I don't like ordering from Amazon, but then on, on a theoretical level, but at the same time, I order something at 10 p.m. and it's there the next day. And fuck, that's a good service. Incredible. It's just incredible. And look- I mean, I admire and respect the people who do DuckDuckGo, don't, you know, shop at a local bookstore, not at Amazon, go to the local organic market. I get it. More power to you. I'm not that pure. I'm just not, I'm not mm. that pure. Yeah. And, you know, look, you've talked about what happened to GameStop earlier. And I think you're right that a lot of it is being fueled by just crazy day traders. Is there a, is there a kind of a bigger picture playing out here? You've, you've mentioned the inequality that that might be fueling that but uh, any any kind of further ideas you wanted to just mention about GameStop yeah so i made some stupid comments around GameStop i said that it was basically a bunch of young men who weren't getting out weren't attaching to school weren't attaching to work and weren't having weren't having sex and were looking for stimulation through other places so they were trading on these very addictive apps and the reality is whenever you make a stereotype you usually find out you're wrong and what i found out is that there's a lot of people who don't fit that stereotype on Robinhood and GameStop. I think there's some big winners and big losers here. I think the biggest winners, quite frankly, are Robinhood. They signed up millions of accounts. They'll go public at a bigger valuation. I think Reddit increased 2 or $3 billion in value because of the attention that was brought to them. You largely saw a transfer of wealth between a certain number of hedge funds to other hedge funds. Silver Lake and a distressed credit fund were the biggest winners here. Some retail investors made money on the way up. I think more of them will find out made a lot of money on the way down. The thing I worry about is that people mistake. If you're in it to learn, you got to say, okay, why am I here? Why am I trading GameStop or AMC? If you're there to learn, okay, fine. Learning usually costs some money. If you're there for enjoyment, okay, fine. A dopa hit. Uh, going to casinos or gambling or going to a strip club or, you know, those things usually cost money. If you're really investing, and I think of investing as I expect to build economic security this way, 80% of day traders lose money. 80% of day traders lose money. And if you're talking about young men, young men are more prone to gambling. 23% of people who gamble develop an addiction for males. It's only 7% for, for women. 80, 80% of people who are day traders are men. There's a lot of young men at home with this this weapon of mass destruction called a phone, and that might be a little bit provocative. And then we have a cadre of billionaires egging them on, posing for the millennial cameras saying, hold the line, and maybe stocks should be thought of differently. And I look at mm. these guys, and I know them, and I'm like, they don't believe that shit. They don't believe what they're saying. Yeah. And when someone is telling you to hold the line, that means you're about to get a spear in the chest. And, you know, I believe... I believe that if you want to be in finance, and there's some great things that are going to come with this. It has inspired a lot, I think, of people 
it's inspired their interest in the markets. That's a great thing. It's a great way to make a living. But I think a lot of these folks who claim that they're learning and they're learning about the markets, that's like saying, I want to be in film, so I'm going to watch porn all day. Trading Bitcoin, not based on technicals, going into AMC because a billionaire said to hold the line, that's not learning about finance. That's gambling. And by the way, I love to gamble. I get a dope hit from it. I go to mm -hmm. Vegas. I put on a kilt and a blazer, and I, but I expect to lose my money. And what I'm worried about here yeah. is this perfect storm of boredom, this perfect storm of a lot of young males being at home, this perfect storm of an app that makes it so easy for you to lever up with options and these weapons of kind of mass destruction that a lot of these individuals don't really understand. 50% of the people who bought GameStop, GameStop had never traded before. Yeah. So I think this is a lot of pain, and I got pilloried, rightfully so, for saying this was a bunch of bored men at home, and I got a lot of pushback. But I, I think there's, I think coming out of this, we're going to find that, like a lot of these apps that don't charge you anything, you are the product, and GameStop is trying to give you the impression that everyone's making money for you, so you better trade. That is not. That is a short-term recipe are losing money. And I think investing in the market should be about building economic security. And I don't think a lot of people were being very honest. I think they thought they were going to make money. And I think a lot of people, I think there's going to be a lot of pain. Well, Scott, to give you uh, some data points to um, back up that statement that you said, I, I, I know you were t torn apart on Twitter and, and I think it was more of the way you said it rather than what you were saying, yep. the substance. Yep. But in this country, gambling apps are legal. So you can, you know, open up an app and bet on any football game or horse race or whatever on your phone. I think they're disgusting apps. They're, they're hugely popular amongst young men in this country. A couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to some people who did a, a stock trading uh, podcast in Australia. And they said that their numbers have skyrocketed during the pandemic because there was no sport on. Yeah. So all these men who would normally gamble on sport, all these young men had nothing else to gamble on, so they turned to stocks to, to get that dopamine hit. So I do think that there is, you're absolutely 100% right, that that is part of the uh, appeal of what what fed GameStop and the craziness that we saw a couple of weeks ago. 100%. Again, don't want to don't want to defend the wording of the tweet, but... No, I got that um, wrong. Yeah, Look, I, I, think I, the, I have shitty takes all the time, but I felt like... My heart was in the right place. I'm very, I coach a lot of young men. And the first thing I do is I ask to see their phone and I look at what they're using. And I see these kids, 20, 22 years old, spending three hours a day on Coinbase. I'm like, what are you doing on Coinbase? Mm. I'm, I'm trading Bitcoin. I'm like, well, if you believe in Bitcoin, buy it and hold it and ignore it. Unless you think you're going to, unless you want to pursue a career in foreign exchange or currency exchange or or, or you know, trading. But keep in mind, if you expect to be a trader, you know, you need a supercomputer and a, and work for a firm that has PhDs. You're you're going up against very talented people on the other side of the trade. Yeah, I got that. I got that one wrong. I hope that, you know, I I, I do think that uh, I think day trading is just I, I think it's a menace. And unfortunately, you mentioned a, a casino. I think most people when they walk into a casino, sort of know they might lose. <laughs> They sort of mm, go, okay, mm. there's a chance I'm going to lose most or all of it. I think that when a lot of famous people come out with one-word tweets and, they, and the app gives them the impression everyone's making money and it drops confetti, I don't know if they're fully in touch with the reality that if you bought GameStop uh, 10 days ago at the high, you've lost 90% of your capital. 
I don't think a lot of people went hmm. into this thinking I could lose 90%. I know when I walk into a casino, I could lose 90% of what the chips in my pocket. I'm not sure these folks realize hmm. that. So look, the best regulation is lessons. No one should be prohibited from buying stock. That's their right. Life lessons are important. I went through the same thing as a young man. I remember trading iOmega stock and I, I, I got a nice hit. There's a great saying that any fool can make money. It's just hard to keep it. I made a bunch of money and then I lost it all and more. And I was fortunate enough that it wasn't a ton of money and I learned a life lesson. And I think I've been a little bit pedantic or a little bit arrogant or scolding or okay boomer or whatever you want to call it about young people needing to learn that lesson on their own. But I, I find some of these apps to be really, I don't know, frightening, dark, dark, dark addictive behavior or gamification, I think is, is uh, something we need to be concerned about. Yeah. Look, the, the bullshit conceit of this show is that I get people on to talk about their podcast and the idea of what makes their podcast and all that kind of stuff. Realistically, it's just so I can talk to my heroes. Go and, on. Um, and <laughs> so thank you for that. But, but I guess we should actually pay the bills in that sense. So can you tell the good people all the different podcasts that you're on and your fantastic books as well, because I would highly recommend them. Oh, thanks for that. So I co-host Pivot with the inimitable Kara Swisher, who, quote unquote, discovered me, if you will. And I have my own po podcast, Prop G. And my most recent book is Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. And my two other books are The Algebra of Happiness and The Four. Uh, I would highly recommend The Algebra of Happiness um, for anyone who is uh, trying to figure out what the hell to do with their life. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still working on it. But thank you. Thanks for saying that. No worries at all, mate. Scott, you're an absolute inspiration. I'll, I'll, I'll say the one thing that Kara said about you when she was on here, that in a given hour, you will drop seven or eight insights that most people would, would kill to get one out in their life. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the nicest. That's the nicest and most disingenuous thing she's ever said about me. But but thank you. I thought you were going to say drop seven or eight f bombs. But thank you, Peter, and keep doing your keep doing your good work. And Australia, I cannot wait to get back to Melbourne. And I get the mm -hmm. sense that Peter Wells is very dialed in in Melbourne. Am I right or am I right? Oh God, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm a nobody. Uh, but I don't yeah, buy it. But, but I'll take you around. I'll take you I don't around. Buy it. I'm counting on it. You are now the most famous person I know in Melbourne, Peter. Fantastic. Well, I mean, seriously, I'm hanging to get back to America. I, I used to visit like three or four times a Great year. And and there, there's something about the, the energy of the joint that is infectious. And, and that's a terrible word to use in 2021. But, you know, it, it was a, it, it's a really wonderful place to visit. And I, and I miss going there. So I really want you guys to get your to shit get it, together, mate. To get it together. Don't count us out. We're on our way back, Peter. Don't count us out. We're Fantastic. on our way back. All right, brother. All right. Thank you thank so you. much. Cheers. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.